The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. <clears throat> okay, everyone, so uh, let's do the um, questions for tonight. I just thought I would start out with talking a little bit. Someone mentioned yesterday doing a four elements meditation. And um, these things, uh, to my mind, are more like contemplations uh, that you do. Uh, I'm not sure how useful it is to do as a guided meditation. Uh, uh, just to give you a general idea what this is about, uh, it is really just about understanding that the body is no different uh, from the world outside. Uh, and that the physical aspect of the body, the material aspects, are like the material aspects outside. Uh, and of course, the body arises from these external phenomena. It goes back to them when you die. Uh, water goes to water, air to air, uh, heat to heat, etc. So the body is not no different from the world outside. Uh, and it's a way of uh, depersonalizing the body, uh, making sure that you don't kind of hold on to something which ultimately belongs to nature and does not belong to you. Uh, that is really what this is about. So just reflecting on that. Uh, and if you want a detailed exposition of how this is done, you find that in the Majjhimanikai 28, the, the Mahahatipadopama Sutta, the greatest sutta on the elephant's footprint. It has those instructions in quite a lot of detail how to do that. But the general idea is just to uh, let go of the body because the body is just uh, no different from the external world outside. Um, so those contemplations that you find in the Satipatthana Sutta are really all geared towards that, the 31 parts of the body, the four elements contemplation, the cemetery contemplations. Uh, I'm not sure if I would recommend the cemetery contemplation, but the four elements uh, can be useful. Uh, and it leads to detachment from the body, which uh, ultimately will lead to a deepening of your meditation if you uh, get that right. Uh, so check out Majjhimanikai 28. That's really the uh, classic uh, description of that meditation or contemplation, if you like. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, get down to the other questions for today. Uh, Hi, Ajahn. Last few days I found my mind is so peaceful. Yay! <laughs> Excellent. Uh, very little distractions from the outside world. Uh, please advise how to maintain this peace when the retreat is over and go back to normal life. Okay, so how to do that? Don't do it. That's how to do it. Uh, don't even try, it's impossible, can't be done unless you are, maybe if you are the Buddha you can do it, but if you're not yet the Buddha, then don't expect this to happen here. So the, uh, the best thing to do is to realize that uh, a meditation retreat is a special situation. You cannot sustain these things in ordinary life. Uh, and uh, the purpose of meditation in daily life is not necessarily to go very deep. Maybe occasionally you will go deep because you somehow the cause and conditions come together. But the main purpose of meditation in ordinary life is to make sure that you can at least just relax, uh, at least to have a bit of time out when the mind can kind of not be under control and you kind of force it to be this way or that way. Uh, and if you do that right, if you learn to relax properly and just to be at peace, a little bit of peace with yourself, uh, you find you become a better person to the people around you. So it supports your virtue and morality and kindness in daily life. And that is the most important thing, uh, because it is that virtue that ultimately will make your meditation and your entire spiritual path work. Uh, that is the foundation. So if you can keep that foundation strong uh, and you can use meditation to help with that, uh, 
that is kind of the main idea as far as I'm concerned in daily life. If you can take it deeper because your lifestyle or whatever permits you to do that, that is great. But please don't have too high expectations in daily life because you're not going to be able to do it. It's really as, really as simple as that. So terribly sorry about that answer. That's, uh, that's the reality of things. Uh, so. <coughs> All right, next one. Dear Ajahn, many thanks for your teachings. Is there any place for body scanning in Buddhist meditation? Uh, um, it depends. I guess it's up to you, Yeah, whether you want to make it as part of your practice or not. Uh, it's a very kind of common thing, and I think it... Uh, derives ultimately from meditations like the 31 parts of the body and that sort of thing. That's what it derives from, uh, even though the Buddha doesn't really talk about it uh, in any much context outside of that. Uh, um, the idea very often is to have a kind of preliminary thing which settles you in meditation. Uh, and once that settlement is done uh, and you are able to watch the breath or not, you don't really need to do body scanning anymore. Uh, it's really just part of getting going uh, with your meditation practice. Uh, and uh, part of that is to be able to relax properly. Uh, so often you do body scanning to kind of massage yourself a little bit, to have metta for yourself, compassion for yourself, send some good vibes to your body. You are at ease, you can be comfortable. Uh, and also to have something to focus on so the mind is not too distracted uh, going into the world, into the future and all of these kind of things. Uh, so that's kind of the purpose, to have some initial object to focus on. Uh, so it is really entirely up to you. Remember that in the end, what really matters in meditation, how you decide whether something is useful or not, is whether it has good benefits for you. Uh, if you find it beneficial, uh, if it makes you peaceful, if it has good results, everything is measured by the results, uh, then you can do it. Uh, that's really what I would recommend with everything. Uh, and in the end, you have to take responsibility for your own practice. Uh, don't just kind of blindly follow a method or a system. Uh, always ask yourself about the results. Uh, and if the results are good, carry on. Uh, down the track, ask yourself again, because sometimes there may be results initially, and then they stop coming. Uh, and the reason they stop coming is because you are getting used to the method, uh, becoming too much of a habit. Uh, it loses its freshness, it loses its novelty. Uh, and then you stop having the same results because of that. Uh, so always come back to this idea. Is it working? This is some, a question we should always ask ourselves. Uh, am I moving forward on the path or not? If you're not moving forward on the path, uh, there is a problem. Uh, because the whole idea of Buddhism doesn't make any sense unless you're making progress. Uh, that is what has sustained me as a monastic for almost 30 years. Uh, is that fact that I have seen the progress in my mental state and, uh, and, and everything really, my enjoyment of life or whatever it is. Uh, I'm not sure if a Buddhist monk is supposed to enjoy life, but anyway. <laughs> no, it's true. You enjoy life, but in a different way, right? Uh, and this is kind of the point. Uh, and so you, there should be a sense of progress. In fact, the Buddha says in the suttas, uh, that is how you dis make any decision in life. You make a decision based on whether it leads forward or not, whether your good qualities are improving and your bad qualities are going down. That is how all decisions are made. Should you teach this retreat or should I not? It's a good question. Maybe I shouldn't. What do you, I don't know. Is it too late? to No. No, I'm just messing around. Sorry about that. I, all things, all decisions that you make should be based on that general idea. Is it going to be positive or not? Yeah. 
Are you a Buddhist because it leads to good things? Are you, am I a monastic because it has the right uh, effects? Am I, do I have the right teeth? Am I living in the right monastery? Am I wearing the right kind of robe? Am I eating the right kind of food? Everything, every decision, are you working in the right place? All of these things should be based on that. So uh, then you are on the right track. So really come back to that. That's how you know whether the body scanning is correct for you or not. Check out if it really calms you down, makes you peaceful, leads you onwards on the right way on the path. All right. <laughs> Can't see anything without my glasses, unfortunately. Yeah. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, wonderful to have you back at the BSV. Now that's kind of note I'd like to hear. This is, okay, good. Nice, nice to have you here as well, by the way, because... Uh, <laughs> Thank you for your clear and concise explanations of the suttas and daily Q&As. My question is, is mind and consciousness the same thing or are they separate? So this is really just about how we use words. Yeah, and I mean, mind and consciousness, it depends what, whether you mean in the Pali language or the English language. In English, whether mind and consciousness is the same, Depends, look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, as I said the other day. That's kind of what gives you the definition of these. Uh, depends how you use them. Uh, in Pali, the usual word we translate as consciousness is vinyana. And the usual word we translate as mind is chitta. So are these the same? And uh, sometimes they are the same, sometimes they are not. Uh, just like in English, sometimes mind and consciousness are the same, sometimes they are not, depending on how they're used in language. Uh, for example, the Buddha says this thing we call the mind, chitta, this thing we call consciousness, uh, uh, this thing we call mano, mano is like another word for mind, mental or mentality or whatever you want to call it. Uh, this thing, we call these three things. In other words, they are used synonymously here. Yeah? And this occurs in a few times in the suttas, but uh, at other times they are used to kind of uh, point out um, specific areas uh, of our experiential reality here. And one of those areas is the way the mind can be divided up into various aspects. We can have the will, can be an aspect of the mind. Feelings exist in the mind. Perceptions, the way we construct the world and understand the world, perceptions, that is an aspect of the mind. Consciousness, in this case, just means the ability to be aware, the ability to know anything at all. So when we divide the mind up into sub-factors, then consciousness is much more narrowly defined and mind is much broader. So mind then becomes the word for all mental content, whereas consciousness becomes the ability to be aware or to know things specifically. Consciousness. This is how it is used in the suttas. So, and this kind of mirrors the way it is used in English. Although in English, these things are often not very well defined. Consciousness can have all kinds of meaning. Uh, meanings in English. Uh, so, um, not sure how helpful that is, uh, but uh, the idea with uh, dividing the mind up into subcategories, the idea is that we want, the ultimate idea in Buddhism uh, is to be able to have an insight into the lack of a self, yeah? the lack of any inherent essence. Uh, and the idea of the five khandas, the five personality factors, uh, is that this is where we tend to have a sense of self. So to be able to uncover that sense, that false sense of self, uh, you have to focus or investigate the right kind of places. Uh. And the obvious one is, is like the doer is an obvious place. This is, this is um, Sankara or Chaitana in the suttas. Uh. 
feeling, yeah, we f- maybe feel certain ways, maybe the body, and then of course the awareness itself. Uh, that is the purpose of this division, subdivision of the mind, uh, and the mind then is the overall sense of uh, men- our mental world. Ajahn, can you recommend a Pali glossary book, please? Uh, thank you. Pali glossary book, yeah. Uh, I think the best one would be the, um, uh, what's it called, Banana Tiloka? Uh, what's it called again? Buddhist Dictionary, something like that? Yeah, Buddhist, maybe it's called the Buddhist Dictionary. It's a, a German monk called Venerable Nana Tiloka. He lived back in the ni- long time ago now, but he made a kind of short, little dictionary, which is essentially like a glossary, an explanation of Pali terms, yeah, core Pali terms. I think it's called, is it called a Buddhist Dictionary? Maybe, right? I'm not sure. Is that what it is? Okay, yeah, okay, if you say so, then I, I will take that, yeah. Um, or, of course, you can use a dictionary. Yeah, Pali dictionary also is obviously like a glossary in a sense. And that's otherwise, there are glossary at the back of all the translations of the Nikaya. So, if you go to Bhikkhu translation of the Majjhima Nikaya, there's a glossary at the back. Same thing with the Sangyutta Nikaya and Guttra Nikaya. And it just gives you a one to one explanation of uh, the words. But uh, the Buddhist dictionary, Bhikkhu Loka, is probably a, a good one. Do they have that in the library here? Yes, they have it in the library here. So there you are. So you can probably borrow it from right from this very place. All right. Venerable Ajahn, I really like the way you advise us to imagine the Buddha in the front of us. And he is our teacher here and now. If I want to study the sutta, where should I start? Which ones are more simple for beginners but important also to improve our path to Nibbana? Hmm. Okay, so if you go to the Majjhima Nikaya, don't read the first sutta. You will be put off, might be put off for the rest of your life because it is very hard to understand. So don't read the first one, second one, yeah, maybe, maybe second one. So second one is the Sabhasava Sutta, all the taints. Third one, it's called the Dhamma, Dhammadayada Sutta, the heir to the Dhamma. Yeah, it's not bad. Fourth one, that's one we did today. The fourth one we did today, right? That's the Bayabhairava Sutta, the Fear and Dread Sutta. Did you like that one? Doing it today? Yeah? Okay, so that's, you read that one more, more times. Read it again and again and again. <laughs> that's a nice sutta, right? Read the Chula Hati Padopama Sutta, Majjhima 27. That is the sutta that Mahinda, Venerable Mahinda, took to Sri Lanka and he converted the entire royal palace and the island of Sri Lanka pretty much to Buddhism with that sutta. Yeah, so all the, all the people with Sri Lankan background here will be aware of that. Are you aware of that, people with Sri Lankan background? Yeah? The, no, you're not aware? Yeah, you are aware. Okay, some of you are aware, some of you are not aware. That is um, according to the Mahavangsa. Mahavangsa is the chronicle of history in Sri Lanka. It talks about all the ancient kings in Sri Lanka and how Buddhism arrived there. And they talk about Mahinda, who was the son of King Ashoka, came to Sri Lanka. And the sutta he taught was the Chula Hattipadopa. It's a beautiful sutta, really, really inspiring. And uh, the... Um, it's the whole gradual training, yeah? and uh, I haven't looked at the gradual training on this retreat. This is one of the core aspects of Buddhism. It gives you the training from the very beginning all the way to the very end, with all the various things that you have to do. So if you want the path to Nibbana, bang, there you are. Yeah? It's really, really nice. And it's very inspiring because uh, 
towards the end it talks about the jhana states and the stages of awakening or the tevija, the three knowledges and all that. And it says specifically that these things are the footprints of the Tathagata, the footprints of the Buddha. Yeah? And it is similar to seeing the footprint of the elephant. And that is why, you know, when you see the footprint of an elephant in the forest, uh, you see a large footprint, you think, yeah, this might be a really large elephant with big tuskers and all of that. Uh, but you don't yet come to the conclusion that it is for certain because you haven't seen that elephant. Uh, sometimes you have a small elephant with large feet. Uh, just like people, you have short people with big feet. Yeah, same kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> And then eventually, so you follow after this footprint, and eventually, after following after, you see the big, big elephant, and you know that the footprint, yeah, the simile of the elephant's footprint has come to the conclusion, because now you know actually it was a big elephant. In the same way, you come to the first jhana, the first jhana is a footprint of the Buddha. It's powerful stuff. You read that, and you don't really take it on board. What that means is that when you come to the jhana states, you are experiencing things that the Buddha must have gone through on his path to awakening. You're very close to awakening here. The footprint of the Buddha. You are in the vicinity of the Buddha. You're not far away when you come to the first jhana. This is the power of this kind of samadhi. And it's, people say samadhi is not important. Do dry vipassana. Just, you know, this, this thing's, I mean, it's, it's madness when you read some of these suttas. So this sutta will take you out of that madness. It will uh, restore sanity in the world. <laughs> so this is kind of the idea, and it's very, very beautiful sutta. And so please read it. And it was what converted the Sri Lankan royalty, according to the story, to Buddhism as a consequence. And then, of course, it was not just Mahinda. It was also his sister, Sangamitta. Uh, she came later on. She brought the Bodhi tree to Sri Lanka. Yeah, she came. There's a famous painting in the Kelanya temple in Col just outside Colombo. Uh, and there's a t painting, a mural on the wall. I've never been there, but I've seen the picture. Uh, and it is kind of uh, Sangamitta. She comes off the ship. You know that pa famous painting? Yeah? It's a beautiful painting, right? And she holds the Bodhi tree in her hand. It's kind of descending from the ship. It's bringing the Bodhi tree to Sri Lanka. Uh, and today, the Bodhi tree is one of the holiest things in Sri Lanka. You have the Temple of the Tooth in Kandy, and then you have the Bodhi tree in Anuradhapura. These are the two most holy things like from Buddhism in Sri Lanka. Am I telling it as correct, right? Okay, I was getting on thin ice there. Well, maybe I... <laughs> it's not... <laughs> so, that is the gratitude to the Bhikkhuni Sangha. This is what the Bhikkhunis, the nuns of ancient India, have done for Sri Lanka. They bought a Bodhi tree there. And now the Bodhi tree in Sri Lanka is very, very famous. We have saplings of that Bodhi tree in Perth. Yeah, it, was, it came in through the customs in Australia. And of course, the customs don't really like bringing plants. And the Bodhi tree had to be in quarantine for six months before we could take it in there. <laughs> They have no appreciation for Bodhi trees, right? Uh, there's education to be done in Sri Lanka. This is what I say. We need to educate the customs officers that more respect for the Bodhi tree, please. Uh, no six months. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, and so that is actually the Bhikkhuni Sangha that brought that to Sri Lanka. So there's very good reason for uh, the Sri Lanka as a nation, especially the Buddhists in Sri Lanka, to have a lot of gratitude to the Bhikkhunis. Uh, when you think like that, uh, you want to start ordaining bhikkhunis again, right? Uh, because, wow, that is what they did. Uh, yay for the bhikkhunis. Uh. And then when you see the aspirants to become bhikkhunis, you have one aspirant over there. Uh, <laughs> bhikkhuni aspirant. <laughs> 
you kind of want to support that because it's such a wonderful thing when that happens. So, so um, now what was the question? <laughs> Studying the sutta, that's right. So study, that is a beautiful sutta to study. Uh, take a book like Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi's book in the words of the Buddha. It's a beautiful book. It's a compilation of suttas and it's introduced by Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi who is one of the... Uh, First of all, he translates the suttas in a very beautiful way. Uh, he has a very, very good ability with language. You get that feeling straight away that his abilities with language is really, you know, he, his English is just very beautiful. It flows very nicely and all of that. Uh, and he also has a very good understanding of Buddhism. And he is good, very good at Pali. Uh, and he's just ven generally a very smart fellow. Uh, fellow, is that the right word? Venerable, a uh, very smart venerable. Uh, <laughs> And so read some of his, uh, in the Buddha's words, it's actually very well done. Uh, has good notes at the back and all of that. Uh, uh, read some inspiring things uh, on the Buddhist path. There's lots of very inspiring things in the Buddhist literature. Uh, verse, uh, Dhammapada, very beautiful collection. Uh, not everything is equal inspiring, but a lot of there is very nice. Uh, read the Terigata. I don't know if you are a woman or a man, but as a woman, uh, Terigata is very inspiring. It's all the ancient nuns, all the Arahant nuns uh, who spoke verses in praise of awakening and these kind of things. It's really inspiring, very beautiful. Uh, uh, Teragata, if you're a man, is all the ancient monks uh, yeah, who spoke verses by the Dhamma. This is all very, very interesting and fascinating. Yeah. Get some inspiration from these things. Uh. So something like that, uh, yeah. Uh, but really it's strange sometimes. Sometimes you just start reading the suttas. You don't know what will inspire you. Uh, it varies from person to person. Uh, one of the things I was very glad that I did, I always listened to Ajahn Brahm, but uh, sometimes when I went to the suttas, I saw things that he had never taught that inspired me in a different way. And I realized that what inspires him is not necessarily the same thing that will inspire me. Uh, we're all slightly different. Uh, yeah. So go to the suttas and just start reading. And if you don't like the sutta, skip it. Uh, if you don't like it, skip the next one. Uh, uh, even if there's only one sutta in the whole collection that you enjoy, it is worthwhile. Uh, don't read it if you don't enjoy it. Uh, the idea is to enjoy it. Uh, the idea is to be inspired. Uh, the idea is to think, wow, that is so interesting. Uh, yeah? Or be inspired or whatever. Uh, and again, don't read the first sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya. <laughs> Nor the first sutta of the Diga Nikaya. That's also very kind of hard going. So, for some reason, the first suttas are very difficult. Uh, but the first sutta of the Sangutta is good. That's a really nice one, actually. First sutta of the Sangutta Nikaya. That's a good one. Sangutta Nikaya, first sutta, no good again. So only in the Sangutta Nikaya. <laughs> All right. So that's a um, little bit of uh, uh, information on that. Hi, Ajahn. What is your view on the origin of the mind? Hmm... Do you want the view or do you want the reality? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so the the um, the answer to that question, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by the origin of the mind here, but uh, let us just take the modern outlook, the general modern outlook about the mind, uh, is that the mind is some sort of uh, um, some some kind of emanation of material phenomena. Uh, yeah, the physical world comes first, uh, and then the mind somehow emerges from physical phenomena. It's called an emergent quality of the, in, in the physical world. Uh, and it is a view of the world that makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, 
people are turning away from that. Scientists are turning away from it. Philosophers are turning away from it. There is a paradigm shift on the way in the scientific community, happening slowly but surely, when they realize that actually this is completely untenable. It doesn't work. There's no way, in principle even, uh, that the mind can be explained from material phenomena because it is an entirely, completely different thing here. Awareness, subjective awareness of the world is completely different from physical quantities. Uh, and this is, was an Australian philosopher, quite a famous Australian philosopher called David Chalmers, uh, who made this point back in the 1990s uh, and has been growing since then. Uh, and he said this is called the hard problem of consciousness uh, because there's no way you can explain consciousness even in principle as coming from material phenomena. And so this is a very interesting development in uh, in science and philosophy, and there are many scientists now turning away from this, some very famous neuroscientists who have taken on entirely different views about these things, and they are bringing the mind back into the, as a fundamental property of the world, and it's about time. Buddhism has been saying this for two and a half thousand years, nobody has been listening to us, finally they're getting the point, yeah, we are always ahead of the pack. Yeah. <laughs> And, and it's fascinating because it shows you that we have to be very careful with some of these uh, scientific opinions. Scientific theories are good if they are well substantiated, but scientific opinions we have to be careful with. Uh, there's a big difference between opinions of scientists uh, and more like what you would call the facts of science, uh, yeah? like some of the laws of physics perhaps, or, or maybe uh, Darwinian selection and these kind of things, the natural selection, all, all of these have been very thoroughly studied and they are kind of on fairly solid grounds. Maybe not fully on solid grounds, but reasonably well. But there are other things that are just opinions of scientists, that's why we have to be more careful there. So the mind does not originate from material phenomena, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and uh, people are gradually going away from that. Uh, so if that is not the case, then maybe mind is a much more primary substance in the world than even material phenomena. Maybe mat mental phenomena come first and then material things come from that. And this is much closer to the Buddhist point of view. And what we find in the, I mentioned this the other day, the Rohitasa Sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya 4s, uh, I think 44, 45, and like that, uh, where the Buddha says the, uh, the world is found in this fathom-long body with its consciousness. Uh, so the world is our world. Uh, the world for you right now is what you are experiencing. That's the world, right? Uh, and each one of us inhabit a world uh, in that sense. And that is the world in Buddhism. Uh, is there anything apart from that? Maybe, but that is the, uh, this mental world is really the primary thing in the world. Uh, there was a philosopher I was listening to who was very interesting, and he says that it's really getting things back to front uh, to start with material phenomena and derive the mind from that. Because the one thing that we do know for sure is the mind, because we always have the mind. Uh, that's what experience is. Uh, material world from physics is it derived from our experience of the world and then we use that derivation to derive the mind which is the primary experience you can see how crazy that is we are <laughs> our primary experience is is to experience the world then we derive material phenomena from that and then after we have derived material phenomena from the mind we say the mind is derived from those material phenomena doesn't make any sense so the mind is primary in our experience, and it makes much more sense to look at it that way. So if the mind is primary, what then is the origin of the mind? Well then, of course, the interesting question is maybe there is no origin of the mind. 
if that is primary, if that maybe there's something that has always been there, just in one way or another. And that is really the Buddhist view. The Buddha says there is no first cause in the world. There is no first experience. There is no first beginning of avidja or ignorance. It has always been there. You cannot find the first point of these things. That is not the same thing as saying it is without beginning, because that may be something we can never know. But you, if you look back in time, you cannot find the first beginning here. And that is another thing which is so beautiful in Buddhism. I mean, saying throughout this retreat all of these things that are special about Buddhism, that makes Buddhism such a wonderful teaching and philosophy and religion that, that separates us from all other religious teachings and philosophies as well in the world. This is another one of these. Because uh, the problem with almost all religions in the world, they have a very big, hard time explaining the beginning of the world. So they say, oh, God created the world. That's how it all began. Uh, that explains nothing. Yeah, what about God? You might as well, you know, there's no point in saying God. You might as well say the universe goes back in time. Yeah, that doesn't make any difference at all. Uh, it's not an explanation. It's just a kind of a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's nothing. Uh, so they should be ashamed of themselves for coming up with these theories. Uh. <laughs> But then the scientists come around, and they are not much better. The scientists say it all began with the Big Bang. And then, of course, the Christians say, that's right, we told you, yeah, God created the universe, because how did the Big Bang come around? It must have been God who started everything. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a famous physicist, he actually said that, well, we can explain everything in the world. We only need one miracle, and that's the beginning point. <laughs> that's a cop-out for a scientist to say we need one miracle, right? That's, that doesn't work. Yeah. And then the Buddhists come around, we say, actually, there is no beginning here. That is the only sensible answer here. You go back prior to the very beginning, there's another cause before that, another cause before that. There is no first cause. You can't find that. That is the sensible answer. And that is why, from a Buddhist point of view, you have one universe after the other, one universe leading to the next one, one before that, before that, before that. And there isn't really any first point. That is my kind of religion. Yeah? And and it's better even than the scientific explanations. The science may eventually come around to the fact that there are universes one after other. In fact, there are scientists today working with precisely those kind of theories. So these theories are actually being developed in the world already. And I think one day they will prove that, uh, one day Buddhism will show them that we knew it first. We had it first, yeah, before everyone else. And, and uh, the reason is because Buddha has an insight into the world that actually includes these kind of things. Uh, that is what is so awesome about the Buddha. Huh? There's, um, I wrote a little booklet on this many years ago called Buddhist Cosmology. Huh? It's available on the internet, which talks about how the Buddha was able to see these things, and uh, wherein I predict that uh, science will one day catch up with Buddhism. Huh? <laughs> yes. So I'm being a bit uh, facetious. But anyway, I, I'm sure you... Uh, so that's, so that's another thing that I like about Buddhism. This has actually a credible idea of how, how the world works. So, uh, so origin of the mind is there is no first point. All right. Dear Ajahn, thank you for your teachings and sharing. Uh, impressive knowledge and wisdom. Okay, well, knowledge maybe. Wisdom is more uncertain, right? Not Hard, that's much more difficult to gauge someone's wisdom. But anyway, I try to look wise at least. Uh, <laughs> what is the best translation for sunyata? I've seen it is translated as emptiness, voidness, nothingness. What is it? Uh, thanks, Ajahn. 
<laughs> so sunyata is uh, really um, like zero. Yeah, it is the kind of the initial, it is kind of where Buddhism kind of came up with the idea of zero, apparently came from sunyata originally. Yeah. And I think emptiness is probably the appropriate word. Uh, voidness is so close to emptiness, I'm not sure if there is much difference. Uh, nothingness, uh, akinshana. Um, well, like, the word akinshana is usually used for the third immaterial attainment, akinshana yatana, the sphere of nothingness. Uh, and uh, nothingness there is actually a perception. It's the perception of nothingness. So it is still not nothing. Yeah? Because you are perceiving nothing, it means that there is that perception there. But emptiness is even devoid of that perception. So there's absolutely nothing at all left, uh, if you can see the difference there. Yeah. And so, so emptiness is correct. And the emptiness it, it, uh, is about a particular kind of emptiness. It is the emptiness, the lack of a substance, of a self. That is what it refers to. Uh, it is specifically defined like that in the suttas, the empty of a self and what belongs to a self. So that is the emptiness. It's just impermanent phenomena forever rolling on. The path is, how does it go again? The path is, but, the, but it's more, isn't it? The path is, but the traveler on it is not found or something like that. There's something more to it. I'm missing something there. This is from the, the uh, Visuddhimagga. There's some beautiful verse in the Visuddhimagga. Ajahn Brahm pointed this out to me. Uh, something, something like that. The path is, but no traveler on it is found. Uh, so you're not traveling on the path. Uh, you, are, uh, you are just the... Um, what are you? Uh, you, you are, you're being pathed by the path. Uh, the path is in charge, and you are kind of just uh, uh, being um, a victim, if you like, of that path. Uh, it's just... <laughs> Happening, happening to you. But you're a happy victim, right? Because it good, gives good results. So. All right. Dear Ajahn, you talk today about looking at desire, anger, etc. neutrally and watch it fade away. I think that is what Ajahn Sumedha means by choiceless awareness. Uh, accepting the way it is rather than reacting. Problem is, for how long can we watch that neutrally? Uh, some emotions like depression are overwhelming. Please advise. Many thanks. Uh, so it's not just about watching. Uh, watching is only part of it. Uh, uh, watching gives rise to insight if you do it in the right way. You understand why you are angry and you can also understand why you are depressed. Uh, and the reason you are depressed tends to be because you are too hard on yourself. Yeah, You think that you are, I'm nothing, I'm worthless. And then you get depressed because of that. And that is not a good idea. So appreciate yourself. You are here. You're practicing well. You are living a good life. It doesn't matter whether you are successful in life and all these kind of things. Often people get depressed because they have the wrong values. They want to be successful in their careers. They want to be successful in various ways. They want to look in a certain way. They have this unrealistic expectations of life. If you can have a good heart, you are incredibly successful. That is what real success looks like. If you come here, at the very least, you have very good intentions. and You're already on the right path. Yeah, what a wonderful thing that is. Appreciate yourself. You have every reason to have a lot of self-worth, a lot of self-esteem, if you're part of a community like this. And then when you start to think about it like that, yeah, even if you can never get anything else right in the world, that is what really matters. Everything else is irrelevant. Yeah, the best monks are the monks who are 
sitting quietly in the hut, just meditating all the time. Uh, and the ones that come and give talks at BSV, they're not so good. Uh. So, <laughs> some truth to that, you know. Uh, some of these forest monks who kind of hang out in the forest and all they do is have a really good heart and meditate in the right way. Uh. I mean, a bit of both is okay. Uh. But uh, so appreciate yourself. And, and once you start to watch instead of reacting to your anger or reacting to your desire, uh, saying that you are bad or whatever, uh, once you start watching it, you start to see what is going on. No judgment. You don't need to judge yourself uh, because this is the way you are. Start to uncover the reasons and the causes behind these things. Uh, then you can start to deal, deal with it. Uh, so this is the why this is so important. Uh, I don't know if it, is, if it is exactly the same as choiceless awareness, but it is, uh, it is at least awareness uh, and to see what's happening in you. Uh. All right. Dear Ajahn, you mentioned yesterday about life in the interim before rebirth and after death. Could you please elaborate? I thought that was more Abhidhamma concept. It is the other way around. The Abhidhamma concept is that there is no interim. The Abhidhamma concept is that you have the Chuti Chitta. Uh, if you go into Abhidhamma Chuti Chitta, means the uh, death mind. Yeah, Chuti means like passing away, death. And the next moment is called the Patisandi Vinyana. Patisandi means linking. Vinyana is consciousness, the linking consciousness. So one is the last in this life, the next one is the beginning of the next life. One following after the other. And this is one of those famous controversies in early Buddhism. Is there an intermediate life or not? And Theravada Buddhism came on the side that there is no intermediate life. Other schools of Buddhism came to the idea that there is an intermediate life. And one of the most famous schools that came to that conclusion was the Sotrantikas. And other schools also had the idea that there was intermediate life. And the Sotrantikas would argue with the Theravadans. And of course, they have never agreed. How do we know this? We know this because there's a book called the Kattavattu, found in the Abhidhamma Pitika, the last book, the seventh book of the Abhidhamma Pitika, in which these debates are recorded from the ancient days. And there you can read about these debates. And of course, in these debates, the Theravadans are always right, because it is a Theravadan, Theravadan book. But the interesting thing is, when you read those debates, sometimes you get the feeling that the Theravadans may have got it wrong. This is fascinating, yeah. Now, I'm not, I'm not now distinguishing between the Theravadans and the Mahayana. This is not that at all. This is between the early schools of Buddhism, yeah. So you have the, it's between the Theravadans and the Sarvastivadans, the Theravadans and the Dharmaguptakas, the Theravadans and the Pugalavadans. The Pugalavadans are very important schools in early Buddhism. The Theravadans and the Sotrantikas, the Theravadans and the Mahasangikas, yeah, the early schools of Buddhism. That is where the, uh, the debates were. And sometimes you get the distinct feeling that the Theravadans were wrong. And when you read the suttas, that, that this distinct feeling is multiplied by a hundred or a thousand because it seems like the suttas contradict what the Theravadans are saying. So what we should be, I would recommend you not to be too attached to Theravada. Be instead attached to the suttas. Be attached to the Buddha, the word of the Buddha. That is what matters. Theravada, what does that mean? Well, it means Visuddhimagga, it means commentaries, it means all of this other stuff, it means Abhidhamma, but all of that is uh, more uncertain. The suttas is the most uh, clear expression of the Dhamma that we have. Uh, 
So according to the suttas, there are some interesting suttas. One sutta, which this is the most powerful one of all, where I think it's Vachagotta, he was one of these wanderers, and he comes to the Buddha, and he says, well, you know, what sustains the mind after the person has died, but before he is reborn? And the Buddha says, craving sustains it. So, how are you going to interpret that? It seems very clear that something is happening in between, right? And then you start to read the suttas, and there's more and more indications of that. Yeah? For example, a very common phrase in the suttas is this life, the next life, and in between. So how, what does that mean? It sounds like something is going on in between, right? This world, the next world, and in between. And there's many, many, quite a few like that, uh, which kind of point very firmly in that direction. Uh, so I have no, not much doubt at all that there is such a thing as an interim existence, or called the intermediate existence, uh, known as the antara bhava in Pali. Antara means between, bhava means existence. Uh, and, uh, uh, and of course, what is also very interesting about this, if you look at some of the modern research into near-death experiences, uh, that also suggests something like that is going on. Yeah, people have this experience of leaving their bodies uh, and then kind of not, not go, being able to go beyond a certain threshold because then you can't go back again. Uh, yeah, what is that? Uh, it does kind of give an indication at least that there is an intermediate existence of some kind. Uh, there may be ways whereby these different worldviews can be reconciled. Uh, for example, you could argue that the antrabhava is in itself a kind of life or existence. There is ways maybe of reconciling that. But uh, I think generally, the general idea to me seems to be that there is such a thing as an, uh, some kind of intermediate thing before your kamma takes, uh, uh, kind of starts to work and then you are reborn. And that has some very significant consequences. Uh, and one of the very important consequences of that is that you don't have to be so concerned about your mind state when you die. Uh, if your last mind moment is the last one before the next moment in your next life, and then that last mind is going to be very important. Yeah. And you can't really relax on your deathbed. <laughs> <laughs> Get it right, yeah? Listen, Dad, get it right. Don't get angry now. Go away, go away. You can imagine the stress when you're dying, right? We've got to get that last moment right. Jeepers, that's terrible. But if you have the view of the suttas, you can relax on your deathbed, yeah? You can just chill, allow things to take its course. Much, much better than kind of getting stressed out in the last few moments of your life. Well, this is the advantage of having an intermediate existence, yeah? Don't have to be so concerned about these things. And then during that intermediate existence, that's when you have your life review. That's when uh, all of these things that we can read about in near-death experience, all of these things happen. And that is how kamma then takes its effect and then takes you on to a new life as a consequence. So it's interesting. Some of these little things actually have some fairly interesting consequences. Uh, and this whole idea that your mindset when you die is so important, that falls away. It is not so important. Uh, what matters is how you live your life. That is what matters. Uh, moment of death, don't worry too much. Uh. All right. Uh, so, dear Ajahn, when I was talking about enduring pain yesterday, I didn't mean pain during meditation or any other enforced pain. I am uh, agonizing pain due to my physical con in 
agonizing pain due to my physical condition most of the times. So if I were to calmly accept it, rather than always adding a second arrow, will it result in decrease in my quota of bad karma? Uh, so patient endurance rather than agitation should actually add to karma, karmas. It is not going to result decrease in your quota of bad karma. It's not going to make any difference. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, the physical pain sometimes is just because of the nature. It has nothing to do with karma of the past. Uh, the Buddha talks about various reasons why we have pain in the body. Uh, some of it is related to karma, some is not. Uh, so don't don't buy into these silly ideas that uh, somehow you are burning up your bad karma by enduring pain. Uh, if that was the case, when you break a leg, you should never go to the doctor and have your leg fixed. Uh, yeah, you just walk around with on one leg yeah, and the other leg dragging on behind you because it's broken. Uh, that doesn't make any sense, right? No one does that. Uh, and there's a good, very good reason why no one does that. Uh, the, the, one of the points of um, living this life in the modern world is that we also have a good karma. Part of that good karma is having access to good doctors, uh, having access to good medicines, uh, having access to, you know, whatever. Uh, so use those things that you have. That is your inheritance because of your good karma. If you don't use that, you become like a Jain ascetic, uh, deliberately creating pain for yourself. Uh, and the Buddha says, that's crazy. That's what he says in one of the suttas. Well, he doesn't use the word crazy, but that's implied in the way he talks to those Jains. Uh, it's in the Devadaha Sutta, Majjhimanakaya 103? Something like that. 3, 2, yeah, anyway, some, around there somewhere. Yeah. Devadaha Sutta. And uh, so, that is the right attitude. So don't experience any unnecessary pain. Please don't do that. It is a misunderstanding and a misapplication of the Buddha's teachings. It has been perpetuated by Goenkaji for so long, and it really is one of his most serious mistakes. He has done many good things for Buddhism. This is not one of them. So do follow the good things, not the bad things that he has done. So if you don't the point of meditation is to get away from the body uh, so that you can have a peaceful time, you can build up some good mind states. That is how you create good karma. That is what you want to do. Don't get rid of the bad karma by burning it up. Make good karma that you experience less bad karma in the future. That is the correct way. Uh, it dilutes the bad karma. That is what you really want to do. And you're not going to be able to make that good karma if you have too much pain. Uh, because it's hard to meditate. It's difficult to focus the mind. It's difficult to experience joy and all of these kind of things. All right. Okay, Venerable Sir, much gratitude for your teachings. I thought choiceless awareness of bare attention is to do with just being aware of whatever is happening here. And accepting what is, then reacting, then reacting rather than anything else. Um, yes, uh, I think that is the basic idea. But um, uh, the pro problem with that idea is that um, whatever is happening, there's many things happening at the same time, and your mind will choose among those things. Uh, there is no such thing as being. It's impossible not to choose. Uh, and uh, you will choose according to your proclivities, according to your mental background, according to your kamma, according to your personality. Yeah. So it's not really choiceless in the final sense, but it feels like it's choiceless. Yeah, you sit back, things come and things go. Yeah. So there is a sense in, in there is a sense maybe in which it is uh, choiceless, uh, 
But really, your mind is always directing your attention here, there, and everywhere. This is one of the reasons why we can do breath meditation, because you are directing your mind towards the breath, rather than towards the pain in the body, or whatever else. So, uh, that is the pain there. But you are right, to some extent, because uh, it feels much quite choiceless, because the mind is doing these things quite automatically. So in that sense, uh, there is some truth to that. All right. Dear Ajahn, besides Anapanasati 16 steps, uh, what are other ways to practice Satipatthana Sutta? Uh, thank you with gratitude. So, um, the, I think one of the main ways is the 31 parts of the body. Yeah, this is what is the most prominent of all the Satipatthana practices. Uh, and uh, what that means is you just kind of envision your body in various parts of the body. Uh, and what that does, if you do it well, it leads to a reduction of attachment to the body. That's kind of the idea behind that. Uh, would I recommend it? Uh, for most people, no, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, if you live an ordinary lay life and you live an ordinary enjoyment of the five senses in the world, uh, this is not really going to be all that useful. It can be useful if you live a life a bit like a monastic, then these things can be useful uh, because you are moving away from the whole sensory realm. Uh, but if you're living a more ordinary lay life, then it's going to be, uh, maybe on retreat you can do this, yeah? so you can distance yourself a bit from the body. Uh, but there's going to be like a fight between the sensuality on the one hand and the 31 parts of the body on the other hand. Uh, and the sensuality is always going to win out uh, because it is, that is the attraction uh, and that is where the attraction lies. Uh. So, um, you, but you can, can do it. You can do the four elements meditation. Uh, it is uh, mentioned in the Satipatthana Sutta, but also elsewhere. So it is a fair income meditation in Buddhism. So uh, that's what we talked about just before, how the elements of the body are the same as the elements outside. Yeah? The body is just part of the earth, and it will go back to the earth. There's nothing really here that is inherent or important or whatever and then in the next life you have a different body and then you're attached to that one it's kind of crazy you're attached to one and the next one after a while you wonder why you're attaching at all if you're always changing bodies what's the point of being attached to any of them might as well just okay pass through them as they say so these are i think the main kind of contemplations in um, for Satipatthana practice. This is all to do with Kaya Nupassana, the contemplation of the body. Uh, contemplation of feeling and mind are not really given any particular objects or not given any particular context in the Satipatthana Sutta. So it's best to do that through the mindfulness of breathing, in my opinion, although other people don't. Gwenka goes to directly to the feelings in the body. Uh, I think it's better to follow the Buddha's advice using the breath as the anchor for uh, experiencing those feelings, uh, because that's what the Buddha recommends. Uh. So uh, Anapanasati, to me, is by far the most important practice uh, to fulfill Satipatthana meditation. All right. <clears throat> Dear Ajahn, just clarifying from yesterday, we just have to be aware of the process of breathing in and out. Why so many meditation teachers then focus on the Point, one point of concentration. Uh, as mentioned before, sometimes I can't uh, discern whether breath is going in through both nostrils or one nostril. Uh, I am still confused. Please elaborate. Many thanks. Uh, okay, so the reason why uh, many people focus on one particular point of concentration is because they are Theravada Buddhists. Uh, 
They are not the Buddha's Buddhista. They are Theravada Buddhista. And this was my point just now, is that when you are a Theravada Buddhist, you read the Abhidhamma, you read the commentaries, you read the Visuddhimagga, and you understand the suttas through that lens. In the commentaries, it says that you should follow the breath on the nasaga. Nasa is the nose. It's related to the English word nose. Agga means peak or the tip. Yeah, nasaga, it says specifically. So that is why people feel the breath on the tip of the nose, because that is what is recommended. And that's why you feel it sometimes in one nostril, sometimes another nostril. But actually, the suttas don't say that. This is added to the commentaries. And the commentaries may be right in a certain way. They may be right that actually, when you are aware of the in-breath and the out-breath, when your mind becomes very peaceful, you realize actually that is the most prominent point where you experience the breath. That is usually where you feel it. But So in that sense, the commentaries are right. But it is not recommended in the suttas that you focus on that part of the body. It just says you know the in-breath and you know the out-breath. And that is very doable without really having any awareness of the tip of your nose whatsoever. You just know the breath is going in, you know the breath is going out. So that is what I would recommend. I've learned that from Ajahn Brahm. That's how he meditates, and he's a very successful meditator. So uh, the Pali word is parimukha. Yeah, Parimukkang satting upatapetva, it says in the Anapanasati Sutta. Upatapetva means to establish, satting is obviously mindfulness, and Parimukkang is this word which is not clearly defined except for in the commentaries, but it means something like in the here and now, yeah, in the present awareness, in, in right here and now, something like that, in the present space and time. Mukka means the face or the mouth. Pari means like around. This is kind of the derivation of that word in Pali. But around the face, it's not not entirely. It, maybe it has a more of a metaphorical meaning. So in the here and now, I think is a kind of fairly common translation these days. So um, do what works for you. If you are able to work with just the tip of the nose, one nostril, another nostril, not to worry too much about which nostril or both, make sure it is at least one. <laughs> Otherwise, we may have to carry you out of here afterwards. <laughs> so uh, don't worry too much about those little details. Uh, most important thing is that you are able to do the meditation. <coughs> All right. Dear Ajahn, you mentioned yesterday uh, that the present situation and even our reactions to it are largely governed by past karma. So our reactions of anger, depression, worry, etc., all the negative emotions is conditioned by our past karmas. So if our conditioning is very intense, how to react in a wholesome way? Also, can we forgive ourselves if our anger reaction to a situation is our conditioned response? Why are we held responsible for something over which we have no power? Exactly. You got it? Yeah? Okay. No. <laughs> You're right. That's the whole point, right? So it's not so much kamma. It's also just habit. Kamma and habit is not exactly the same thing. Yeah? Kamma is the relationship between our intentional actions and how we feel, of, feel about ourselves. Habit is just how the ways we have developed over long periods of time. Not exactly the same. They are, have a, they are related to each other, but not exactly the same. Um, so, uh, 
But regardless of whether it is kamma or something else, the point is, and this is exactly the point you're making, it is all conditioned into you. You are not really responsible because you don't exist in the first place. So how could you possibly be responsible? So, uh, and what that means, once you start to understand that these things are all about conditioning, of course you can forgive yourself. Yeah, that's the whole point. That is where forgiveness begins. The problem is that it feels like we are the authors of our own life. It feels like we are in charge. It feels like we have choices to make that are either good or bad. And that feeling is the problem. That feeling gives rise to the sense of responsibility. I am responsible. Then you have remorse. Then you have regrets. Then you feel bad about yourself. But the more insight you get into your own conditioning, the easier it is to forgive yourself for the things you have done. The more you see of that. And if you see that the will is not something you choose, you don't choose your choices, so to speak. Your choices are generated by past conditioning. Then you can always forgive yourself, always have compassion for yourself for that reason. And then... You also don't only have compassion for yourself, but for other people, because you realize they too are exactly in the same situation. They too are conditioned to be the way they are. So this is the, uh, this is the idea behind this, understanding conditioning. Yeah? And if you do get angry, you are conditioned. But instead of blaming yourself for getting angry, you say, okay, this is my conditioning. Let me try to understand this. And when you understand it, then you are changing your habits in the present, no longer allowing yourself to be governed by the past conditioning, but changing your conditioning here and now because you are being clear about what is going on, looking at things in a new way, allowing yourself to react differently in the future. Because you think, wait a minute, why am I reacting like that? This person don't, doesn't know what they're doing. Why am I getting angry with someone who, hasn't, who just deserves compassion? Okay. Let me have compassion for here, from here on in. Uh, yeah, in means you die. So from here on forward. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then uh, you change. Of course, it's not going to happen straight away, but you start to recondition yourself in this way. Uh, this is the power of reconditioning and the power of the path. Uh. So that, that is what it means to react in a wholesome way, right? Uh, is that you look at it, uh, you learn from it, you understand how your conditioning comes about. Then you recondition, uh, using the Buddha's teaching as a guide for that reconditioning. Uh. So that is, um, that's the ideal. All right. Dear Ajahn, could you please share your view on Mahayana teachings like the Heart Sutra and the Diamond Sutra? Are those teachings in line with the Buddha's original teachings? Thank you. I don't know. That's a short answer. I've never read the Heart Sutra, nor have I read the Diamond Sutra. I understand that the Heart Sutra is basically the um, same as the Prajna Paramita Sutra in short, uh, which is kind of one of the most famous of all the Mahayana teachings. Uh, some of a lot of Mahayana is perfectly compatible with Theravada. There's no problems at all. A lot of it is basically the same. Some things may not be compatible. Um, my main problem, what I, the way I think about this, is that uh, I don't really care whether it's compatible or not. Uh, what I know, it was not spoken by the Buddha. It came after the Buddha sometime. Uh, so instead of spending my time reading something by some anonymous author who have no idea who is, I don't know whether they were enlightened or putujanas or whatever they were, instead of reading that stuff, which I have no idea about, I will stick to the teachings of the Buddha. 
that to me is a sensible way of thinking about these things. Uh, that means that you avoid all the later Theravada things, yeah, because that's also not the word of the Buddha. You avoid most of the Mahayana things, that's not the word of the Buddha. And you focus on those things that we know with a fair high degree of certainty came from the Buddha. That is what it means to be a disciple of the Buddha, uh, to really investigate. And the Buddha says that's exactly what we should do. Uh. In the suttas, you find the suttas where they say that, uh, you know, in the future there will be people who read the discourses of disciples, uh, who forget about the profound word of the Buddha connected with emptiness, and they, instead they look at what the disciples say, what the poets say. Uh. So that very problem is, was already foreseen at that time. Uh. And uh, in many places the Buddha says, you know, the Dhamma and Vinya that I have given you should be the teacher after I pass away. Not the Dhamma and Vinya of Buddha Gosa. Not the Dhamma and Vinya of some other random teacher. Very often we don't even know who these authors are. They are anonymous teachers or authors. Yeah, because Buddhism doesn't really have authorship very often with it. And so why do we follow anonymous people who we don't know who they are? We have no real reason to think that they're enlightened, nor do we have any reason to think they're not enlightened. We have no idea who they are. So I say, leave it all to one side. Come back to those things that are most likely to be authentic, and then you are on the safe path. Occasionally you can read the later stuff, because occasionally it might be interesting, but certainly don't make that the mainstay of your Buddhist practice. Okay, I'm just going to finish off the uh, last few questions. I've gone a little bit over time, but not too much, I hope. Uh, Bhante, thank you for your teaching. I have this, if I have this correct, before he became the Buddha Gautama, practiced near a town where he went for alms round, possibly Borgaya, but spent most time in the nearby forest. Or did he move around northern India? Was he always solo then? Um, the answer is that, yes, before his awakening, the last place where he practiced before his awakening was on the banks of the river Niranjara. Uh, and he, that's where he went after he decided to eat. Yeah, he decided that the ascetic practices didn't work. And he says he found a beautiful spot uh, with beautiful banks, the nice shade of the trees near a river for bathing, not far away from a town for arms, yeah? And kind of this beautiful little expression of the middle way. He stayed in a beautiful place in the forest, not just uh, some ascetic place anymore. Uh. So that's where he ended up. But before that, he seemed to have moved around quite a bit with the five ascetics. Uh, when he practiced the ascetic practices, when he practiced the thing we have saw today in the Bayabhairava Sutta, when he, when he stayed with his two first teachers, Alara Kalama and Udakramaputta, uh, and other teachers as well, uh, apparently, then he probably moved around a bit because he started out near Savati, yeah, in Kapilavastu, the town of the Sakyans, but he ended off in Bodhgaya, it's a long, long way in between. So he must have moved between those places somehow at some point. And Alara Kalama seemed to have been pretty much in the very north of India, very close to where the Buddha started out. So, uh, was he always solo? No, because he, first of all, he practiced under other teachers, which is actually very interesting. He was humble enough, he was, didn't have a big ego saying, I'm going to find everything out for myself. But he did take on the best teachers of the time, learn from them, then he went solo. But even then he had people who were with him, like the five ascetics. At least some of the time, not always, some of the time he was also completely solo. 
So there's a bit of a mixed bag there. Yeah. Dear Ajahn, besides reflecting and contemplating, uh, is there no use of walking meditation? Lots of use of walking meditation. Walking slowly and being aware of the body movements, especially feet and lower limbs, as taught by many others. Uh, does it really serve the purpose of increasing samatha? Um, it can do, and if it works for you, you are you know you can do that. Um, I would say that it. I personally, I don't recommend doing samatha meditation all the time. It gets too much at some point. So I would say do samatha when you sit, because that is a solid posture, easy to do samatha. When you walk, do something else. You need a break from the samatha. The mind is not meant to do samatha all the time. So samatha tends to go in cycles. When you come out of your meditation, usually it's a good time to do something else. So just contemplate something. Yeah? Do a bit of metta. Do some death contemplation. Just enjoy the nice weather outside. Uh, beautiful weather here in Melbourne. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> I was uh, surprised at this marvelous weather here. And uh, so just do something different. Because uh, otherwise you're forcing your mind too much to do all of this, uh, all of this samatha meditation all the time. Uh, if it does work for you, Please do it. Yeah, that's the bottom line, really. What works is what matters. So if this kind of method works, watching the feet, watching the movement of it, please carry on. Uh, yeah. Hi, Ajahn. Even in the middle of meditation, the mind gets unwholesome thoughts. Where are these thoughts coming from? Hmm. Uh, so the answer to that is uh, they are coming from past conditioning here. Yeah? yeah. So you look at those thoughts, you will recognize them. They will have some kind of connection to the world uh, one way or another. Uh, you get upset with somebody, someone has said something bad to you, done something bad to you, whatever it is. Uh, uh, there's something you like in the world, so you get to desire the things that you like in the world. Uh, the mind always uh, goes to things, the conditioning of the past. Uh, why do you think those things? Because you want to think those things. That's the bottom line. Uh, that is kind of the embarrassing thing about this. Uh, we actually want to think those bad things. We intend them. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't arise. Uh, so what you need to do is you need to recondition the mind. Uh, if there are certain people who tend to make you upset, uh, look at those people in a new way. See them with compassion and forgiveness. Uh, and as you do that, uh, those thoughts will hopefully not arise again in the future. I talked about this quite a bit already. Uh, so hopefully you have some hints about how to do that. Uh, two more questions. Uh, I'm going a little bit faster now, but because uh, it's getting a little bit late. Uh, so, uh, dear Ajahn, you have mentioned the Satipatthana and Anapanasati Suttas once or twice, and I wondered if you uh, you might be able to set a little bit of time aside. Uh, uh, in uh, the teaching time to talk to us about these, uh, how these are used, practically speaking, in meditation. Uh, I always feel that I lack certainty on this, uh, and I know one of my friends does also. Maybe there are others. I'm sure there are many others. Uh, I have taught the Anapanasati Sutta many times on these retreats before. Are these available, Ajahnisarano? Yeah. There are apparently there are recordings uh, of these things, uh, and I've gone through these in great detail, both Satipatthana Sutta and Anapanasati Sutta. So check out those recordings. Are they available on the BSV website? Or, uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Who? Anyone who knows about the BS? Should be here. Huh? 
Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Sadu, sadu. She's gonna put it up on the board over there, so you will find out whether what's going on on YouTube also. Huh? Okay. Okay. Excellent. So that's maybe the best thing. Yeah. 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 There's also teachings from elsewhere. There's lots of there's, there's so many teachings out there. You, you kind of uh, so uh, because I already have a set of suttas and they're probably enough to keep us going for the rest of the retreat. Uh, and if I go into Anapanasati and Satipanasati, it's going to take hours and hours and hours to go through them. These are very <laughs> dense suttas, packed with information. Every word takes half an hour to talk about. Uh, so that's kind of the that's the problem problem with these things. Uh, so um, yeah, but thank you for that. Thank you for the uh, question. Oh, thank you for the point, because it is a very important point. Uh, and maybe next year we can talk about those suttas again. Dear Rajan, last question for tonight. Can you please suggest a CD or website with good chanting recordings? Uh, thank you very much. Well, I think you have chosen the wrong monk for chanting recordings. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of not my area of expertise at all, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, um, I, maybe Ajahn Nisaruna, are you, are you kind of master of chanting uh, recordings? Uh, <laughs> No. Yeah, I. Um, whoa, that's a, that's a difficult one. I ask around a little bit. Yeah, ask your friends here in the community. They might know more about that than me. I chanting is not my strength. Um, they ask is I know there is some very beautiful chanting available out there. There are some monks who have beautiful voices. Uh, they don't sound like kind of. Uh, uh, horse, frogs, frogs, anything like that. It's kind of, but uh, so there are some people who chant beautifully, beautifully. So uh, uh, some Sri Lankan monks with incredible chanting voices. Uh, um, so uh, check it out. Maybe just go on the internet and Google it and see if you can find something and ask in the community in general. Maybe Venable Santa might have some. Do you have ideas of chanting, Venable? Well, on MBM YouTube yes. channel. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, NBM. Okay, NBM is, is the place to go then, maybe. Okay, so check it out. And if you don't like NBM, then go somewhere else. So see, <laughs> see, see, see what happens. <laughs> ah. Okay. Is it beautiful? Okay, good. So go to those websites and see what happens. And uh, yeah. All right, everyone. That is all for tonight. So I wish you all a wonderful night and I will see you again tomorrow morning.